Well, we looked uh, last week at the signs of Israel's gathering. We're going to continue and finish that right now. The signs of Israel gathering. Uh, we're going, we looked at Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, Zechariah. We looked at several of those that talked about this gathering of, na- of the nation of Israel from all the nations, particularly from the northern region and the south, uh, both of which have now occurred. Um, and nowhere does it really say that Israel is going to become a nation. It's implied that that has already occurred. And so we don't start understanding fulfilled prophecy from 1948 because of the uh, coming into political reality of Israel. We start at when the prophecy is completed and the generation that, that those people gather from the nations are the ones that God is going to be dealing with in terms of the end times. So when we talk about that generation, we're not talking about our generation necessarily of, of we as the Gentiles, but of that generation of Israel gathered from the nations. And that did not occur from 1948, not according to the fulfillment of prophecy from 1948 to 1990. Uh, nowhere during those 52 years, 42 years, sorry. <clears throat> yeah, 42 years did that occur. Uh, really didn't happen until well after 1990. Really, 1994 is the day I tend to select because at that point then the borders were completely open in all of the former Soviet bloc nations for Jews and Israelites to leave and pilgrimage to Israel uh, to immigrate into there at their leisure. And so that's the date I uh, choose and I believe is the uh, beginning of the fulfillment of prophecy. Why is that important? Because that means that we're dealing with a different generation. 42 years. Everybody's looking at 1948. And that would mean that generation um, should not have gone without God dealing with some things. Um, but that generation is going. It is well along the way from along that line. Uh, we now come into this period of this generation. We find this is the generation that came out of the north. This is the time that that has been fulfilled. And so we start with those people who have come out of those countries coming into Israel. That's when we start our generational clock is that period of time, whether you want to say 1989, when the actual dissolution of the Soviet Union occurred, but it really the, 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 the actual movement of people really wasn't uh, in full stride and, and really open until 94. And remember the prophecy says God's going to call them out of those Two regions particularly, but he's going to gather from all the regions. We're going to see that again in our passage tonight. Um, we're not going to be in Isaiah and Jeremiah. We're going to move to Ezekiel tonight and spend a little time really in just one chapter. But I want to uh, reiterate that we are looking at a people movement, not a political entity. It does say that they're going to overflow their boundaries. And so that implies, of course, that there will be boundaries. And some contend that even now Israel doesn't have boundaries, but that's really... Uh, uh, splitting hairs, they do. Um, they're negotiable. We'll put it like that. Right now, Israel's willing to negotiate boundaries, uh, but the central issue is still the Temple Mount. Uh, and I was talking to Pastor Leachman a little bit earlier um, before Sunday school, and uh, uh, one of the things I think that we're going to talk about extensively about Jerusalem a little later on is that... Uh, what we see going on right now is really critical and I think exciting and very positive. Whatever you think, what came out of the DNC, the Democratic National Convention, I was very excited 
Um, it might, I might have to change my party um, because now they have done a phenomenal thing in foreign policy. They have brought to a point one issue and is the only issue of foreign policy that now is really captivating our world, and that is Jerusalem. And if Democrats hadn't done what they did in eliminating that statement, uh, we just have another election with another convention, another platform that gave lip service to the fact that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, Israel is our ally, and nothing would have been done. But now, now they've made this declaration by omission, weird thing to say, but they've made a declaration by omission, now it becomes a central part of foreign policy, which is very exciting. And so I'm not mad at the Democrats. I am very excited about what they've done. Um, and I think it, you should be. And rather than petitioning that they should reverse their course, um, this is exactly the course that we desperately need is for our country's attention on foreign policy to realize that of all that's going on in the Middle East, it is not whether or not Iran has nuclear power that is critical. What is critical in the Middle East is Jerusalem. And prophetically, we're going to look at that in a couple weeks. But tonight I want to look at um, the secondary, well, it's actually primary, it's before the coming. Before the gathering is complete, God says something else is going to start happening. And they're going to coincide. Now, I was really struggling early on of which one am I going to do first, last week or this week. Obviously, I chose to do last week's first. The ingathering of the people that God calls upon. And remember, we have to be real careful to make sure that we're talking uh, about apples and not oranges. That we're talking about the church age events and not the millennial kingdom events. And that is uh, hard work. We have to keep discipline to make sure we are able to delineate those uh, clearly, okay? And so um, I'm hopefully going to demonstrate that to you tonight. But uh, the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 36, if you want to turn there with me very quickly, in verse 8, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 8, and we're really going to study this whole chapter, but I'm going to pull out this verse as an introduction verse because uh, it links it to last week. And uh, we're going to see some other portions about that um, later on in the, in the chapter. Um, but it says, But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. Essentially, God's prophetic word here to Ezekiel is saying, Listen, I'm going to start... Before this massive people movement, I'm going to start doing some wondrous things in the land, on the land, in the mountains, in the valleys, on the plains of Israel before my people start coming. Now, chronologically, this message precedes last week's message. So I'm taking a chapter out of Old Testament, New Testament prophets that they don't worry about chronology. So chronologically... This precedes that. The ingathering of the people is uh, the second in terms of Israel prophetically. Um, there is this statement that God is going to prophesy to the mountains of Israel. And so the people haven't come yet. They haven't been ingathered. Um, he's going to go on later on in this chapter um, in verse 23, if you want to jump down there. And I'll sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. When you have 
profane, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. See, there it is. That's the promise we studied last week. I will gather you into your own land. Now, certainly that demands that Israel have a land set aside. But it's more than that. The prophetic statement is, is I'm going to prepare the land to receive you. You're not going to show up in Israel and need foreign aid to feed yourselves. Let's put it, that's in a modern vernacular, okay? Um, that's essentially what God's going to prophesy here in verse 8. I am not going to allow you to come into your land without having food, without having the, the earth holding back from you. Let's read the entirety of this from verse 1 um, all the way through verse 20. I want to read this portion of Scripture of Ezekiel 20, 36. I'm sorry, 36. It's very important. And uh, we'll see a little bit of it. It says, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. So, um, sometimes I'd like to go preach to something inanimate. Because sometimes I feel like that's what I'm doing anyway. But... Um, <laughs> Among all the things that the prophets had to speak to, sometimes they had to speak to inanimate objects and the critters and things like that. Here he's told to go prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said of you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you are taken up by the lips of talkers and slanders by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, and the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury because you have borne the shame of the nations. Therefore thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath and surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the city shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you. Then at your beginnings, then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel. They shall take possession of you and you shall be their inheritance. No more shall you bereave them of children, thus says the Lord God. Because they say to you, you devour men and bereave your nation of children. Therefore, you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation any more, says the Lord God. Nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations any more nor bear the reproach of the peoples anymore, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble anymore, says the Lord God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, 
When the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols which they had defiled. I, so I scattered them among the nations. and They were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of the Lord... and I'm sorry, when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. And we're going to stop there, because I don't want to get into the next portion yet. I may not get there tonight at all, but we're going to press. So, the condition of Israel is that once about a little bit over 100 A.D., Israel is essentially out of the land entirely. It's going to be dispersed. And prophetically, Ezekiel is told the nations are going to simply ravage it. That they're going to get anything they can get out of it, but they're not going to take care of the land. And they're going to leave it a desolate wasteland. And that's going to be the condition of this promised land. And even today, even though we're seeing some exciting things we're going to talk about, um, we still struggle to read passages of Scripture where we find Israel going into the land, uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we go, huh? Can you imagine a hundred years ago, teachers trying to teach Sunday school that the land of Israel is a land flowing with milk and honey and they're carrying out stuff on sticks, the, the, the clusters of grapes and the pomegranates and all the things that were there in Israel. And we go, it's a desert. Well, how did it change so much? Well, it changed so much because of what the nations have been doing to it. And in fact, the one nation, again, that is selected among all the nations is Edom. And Edom is the east side of the Jordan, and that would be the nation of Jordan today, that they claim possession of portions of uh, that land of Israel, um, and uh, including part, uh, a large portion, or including Jerusalem. And so that was the condition uh, in 1948 and all the way through it around 1967 or so. Uh, we had that, the condition. And, and while there was a lot of, of energy being poured into Israel, predominantly it was about defending her existence. She was simply at war to defend her very existence. We really hadn't seen this kind of development start. Um, but then once... Uh, they were able to substantiate their power over the surrounding nations. And you see how many times it talks about the nations around you. And so that means Egypt, that means Syria, that means um, Saudi Arabia, that means Jordan, that means Lebanon, and even Iraq and Iran, those nations around them. Um, they have laid waste to this area. I know there are the holy wars where we went in there and did some things. We, the Europeans, went in there and tried to do some things. Um, we established some footholds there during the Byzantines uh, period. And, and we find some things happening. But predominantly, it was just a wasteland. In fact, I want to read a quote for you about what it was like not very long ago. Nowhere, and I'm quoting here, in all the waste around was there a foot of shade. It is a blistering, naked, treeless land. There is no dew, 
nor flowers, nor birds, nor trees. There is a plain and an unshaded lake, and beyond them some barren mountains. Of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine must be the prince. The hills are barren, they are dull of color, they are unpicturesque in shape. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. The author of this statement, which he wrote while I was visiting the land, is a guy you know as Mark Twain. This is how he described the land of Israel in the late 1800s. Now, I've been to the land of Israel in the early 2000s, and it doesn't look at all like that. He describes the Sea of Galilee as just a desolate sea in the middle of a desolate land. And it's not that anymore. So this was the kind of statements being made about this place. That who would want to live there? Anywhere where there was water, it was just swamps. When they put wells down, it was brackish. And of course, the region is dominated by the Dead Sea. I mean, for, let's be real. I mean, that's the Dead Sea. And we look at that condition and we find Scripture saying, you know, the enemy of God is saying, aha, aha, you know, look, this is the wonderful land of Israel. It's a desolate place. The most fertile area was along the Jordan and, and, and it was wasted, largely. Um, the other fertile area was up in the Megiddo Valley and it was just swampland. No one lived there. It was swamp land. There were no birds. There were hardly any animals at all to be found. This is how bad it was when Israel got possession of it as political possession in terms of 1948. They come on the scene. This was not a place that everybody was fighting to move to. This was not Florida. This was not Southern California. This was no place like that. This was a place that not even really any of the local Arab nations were really interested because it was desolate. And the desolation even overflowed into those nations. You went up into southern Lebanon. It was desolate. You went up to southern Syria. It was desolate. I mean, you've got a snow-capped mountain there. You've got springs of water. And you think, well, there's got to be good things. I mean, the Bible says that one day that place was a land flowing of milk and honey. You've got a Jordan River going down through there. And how can there not be agriculture? And there wasn't. And you go cross over into Lebanon today, and it's still desolate up there. You cross over into southern Syria, it's still desolate. You cross over to Jordan, and it's not quite as desolate, but it's desolate. The mountains of Gilead aren't too bad. But down south of Gilead, once you get down there, it's desolation. You drive and drive and drive and say, oh, it's just dirt. You go into Saudi Arabia, and it's desolate. You go down into northern Egypt, and it's desolate. Desolation has surrounded this region not just for a decade or so, but for centuries. It is laid waste. And this is the way the world is described as a wasteland, this place. 
It was largely uninhabited. Nobody was really interested. And in fact, the reason the Palestinians were living there was because none of the Arab nations wanted them in their countries. So they dumped them on this wasteland called Palestine. But we know as Israel. So what happened from the early and mid, from the mid-60s to this day? Well, the Bible says that God's going to wake the mountains up. He says, listen, I've let you lay barren. I let you destroy <laughs> to the point that if you, had, if you had a child, and this is not only referring to humans, but even animal children, that the land was against you. The land itself was against you. It would make you barren. It would make you barren of children, of your flocks. They wouldn't be able to bring forth. And, and that's true. If, if under those horrific conditions where it became uh, uh, hot and dry and, and just worthless that you couldn't even have your flocks bring forth lambs or kids. It was desolate. God says, I, at one point, I'm going to say enough. People have talked and slandered my land enough. And we might read this and say, well, Mark Twain wasn't trying to slander God. Yes. This is essentially saying, this place is worthless. It's an observation. You might say, well, it, was, it didn't have that feel about it. Well, that's how he presented it. I don't know why anybody would want to be here. I don't know how you can call this a promised land, a blessed land. This is just a desolate wasteland. Who would want to be here? And he was miserable his whole time there. It was, as he said, it was the most dismal place he'd ever visited. <laughs> Hopeless, dreary, heartbroken. This is the way this land was for centuries. And we need to understand that. And we need to get in touch with that because we think it's always been the way it was back then and the way we see it now. And it wasn't. In these intermediate period, it has been devastated. And then Israel, having put down to some degree her enemies and gained a relative amount of peace, could turn its attention to the land. And be in those 30 years, that generation that was there, they committed themselves to rejuvenating Israel. They did some phenomenal things so that in the course of, of about 30, 35 years, we have this kind of statement being said about Israel. They not only have enough out of what they get in their land to feed all their people, they are a heavy exporter of produce. They are able on the same property and is one of the only places in the world that this is being done to raise apples and oranges in the same field. They have taken brackish wells and they have learned that they can grow water. I mean, I'm a, out of brackish water, they can grow melons, cucumbers, and tomatoes more than they can consume. And they export the balance. 
They now have over 3,000 species of plants, twice as many as exist along the Nile in Egypt in their country. They have the largest variety of domestic fish, both fresh and salt water, in the world in their lakes and rivers and in their fisheries. And their climate is changing. They have planted over 250 million trees by hand. This doesn't count the last 15 years. That's how old these numbers are. I'm talking about that generation that prepared the land for this huge arrival of this great people movement into Israel. None of those people are hungry. The kibbutzes just brought to life the whole area, particularly around the Sea of Galilee first, the Megiddo Valley. The, if you take a photo of it now, you go on Google and look at it, and you can just see that they drained that whole thing into some Pontiers irrigation, and it's some of the most fertile land that exists. And you can sit up there... Um, and look out over that valley on Mount Carmel today, and you're going, wow! And in the middle of that Megiddo Valley, with all that agriculture going on, is not just one little town, but several, and right smack about in the middle of it is the, the Israeli airfield. With some of the finest fighters and fighter pilots in the world. Right there. You haven't heard about this probably, but the U.S. did some years ago do maneuvers with the Israeli Air Force, and uh, all but one of our ace pilots was beaten by the Israeli pilots. We had one kill, and they killed all the rest of us. <laughs> okay, That's in the Megiddo Valley. It sits right there. And it's, it's plush, and you're like, Wow! That valley alone is producing nearly enough, I would imagine, to feed the whole country. You're driving along in the desolate side south of uh, the area there, probably around, around Jericho. You go south and you're getting closer and closer to the Dead Sea. And what do you see along the highway? Groves being planted out in the desert of pineapples and bananas strawberries. How can bananas and strawberries? They're not supposed to grow together. But they grow in Israel together. Figure that one out. You have the most northern tropical port in the world. In Israel. The Gulf of Alat. And you go down to the southern Alat and there's a tropical port. We all have tropical fish and it's farther north than any other tropical port in the world. And Israel has brought in 2 million new residents in the last 10 years and they have no problems feeding them. You'll go to Israel and you'll find no food shortage. God's promise is, is that famine will be taken away from Israel forever. It will never happen again. Not only is there going to be food, but there's going to be beauty. 
that these waste places that are forsaken, that have been made fun of because of how ugly they are, are going to be turned into not only productive areas, but beautiful areas. And if you go to Amsterdam, Netherlands today and go into their world-famous flower markets, you will buy flowers imported from Israel. They export nearly 2 billion flowers a year. This ugly country is flowered. We live in these days. And then there is that thing called the Dead Sea down there, and it is still pretty desolate down there. I mean, it's just, I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah were down there. You can still dig up sulfur that'll catch fire. You can still do that down that area. But something's happening in the Dead Sea, and they've discovered, of course, all of its benefits for humanity to be that low below sea level, and the benefits of the water there, and there are five-star spas all on the Israeli side. The other side, you don't see that on Jordan's side of the Dead Sea. But the Dead Sea is cranking out a livelihood for Israel. And it's continually being drained, portions of it being set aside, and they're mining it. The Dead Sea is one of the heaviest mined area for minerals in the whole region. It's being mined to the point that now the water levels are so large you almost have to take a mode of transportation to get to the water from the five-star resorts that once were built right on the shore. You have to take a little shuttle down to get to the water in many places. Israel, if you look on Google Maps, Google Earth, and you want to just back way up and look at a global view, you will see the outline of the nation. It is not shaded by some magic marker. It is shaded by living material. And you will see a straight line that marks its southern border. You will see a visible color difference between that which is south and not Israel and that which is Israel north. You will see a line that delineates the line between Lebanon and Israel. And that color difference is the color green. And we see that in our day, this is the extent of what has gone on in the mountains and plains and rivers and and uh, valleys of Israel. It has come to life in preparation for the arrival of the dispersed people of Israel. And it's exciting. It's exciting for us to see that God made this statement and has sworn it that Israel will not bear its shame anymore, that land, but rather the land of the nations around her are going to bear their own shame. They're the ones that are going to be desolate. And Israel is going to come to life. Not only in terms of human life, that cities that lay barren are going to be rebuilt and and come uh, forward and, and be populated, 
that Israelites are going to be walking all over that place, speaking Hebrew and, and doing phenomenal things. And they're going to be having babies like crazy again, like down in Egypt. We find this resurgence. And we live in that day. We are watching it happen. So that by the time 1994 occurred, this was all well in place. And within those next 10 years or so, there was never a food shortage. There was, however, a housing shortage. And Israel's been addressing that and addressing that and addressing that, this shortage. And so we find them populating things all the way from north, all the way to the farthest south. Filling it up with people. And I want to tackle for just a minute why. Why is it all this happening before the end times? Um, and why isn't this a description of the millennial kingdom? Well, this is a statement that God has toward the nations before his return. And verse 22, and then it's going to be repeated in verse 29 and 30, are going to be very important. I'm sorry, not 29 and 30, it's going to be um, 32. Let's read 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Verse 22, therefore, save the house of Israel. So he's been talking to the mountains so far, and now he's going to turn and talk to the people of Israel. And he's going to say, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake. He's not doing this because Israel has acknowledged him as their God. He's not doing this because they have come to repentance. He's not doing this because they are righteous. They are not doing this because they have accepted Jesus as their Savior. That is not why he's doing that. The millennial kingdom is all about Jesus being Israel's Savior. And they will recognize him at the end of those seven years and they will in mass accept him. You are the Messiah, our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords. And we enter in the millennial kingdom with Israel in the state of, of right relationship with God. But during this time, it wasn't because they're in a right relationship with God. In fact, they aren't in the right relationship with God yet. He's not doing that because Israel is right with him. I want you to notice that. He is doing this for his own name's sake, he says. I'm doing this for my name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. There is no indication that Israel is at a point of conversion. They are in a point still in rebellion. But the rebellion has gotten so bad, the profaning of God's name has gotten so bad out there among the nations that God says, I'm going to have to do something unilaterally in Israel that is unusual for God because usually he's a responsive God. He says, if you do this by faith, if you trust, if you obey, if you um, abandon your idols, then I'll do this. And he tends to be more responsive in a covenantal relationship manner. Uh, on this occasion, he says, this is going to be unilateral. It is not because of anything Israel is doing positively. This is because of my Name. I am fed up with my name being drugged through the mud by all of these Arab countries and by people like Mark Twain. 
I'm doing it for my name's sake. You profane my name among the nations everywhere you went. If you jump down again to verse 32, again he reiterates it. Well, let's back up. Let's read verse 29. Uh, I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. That will come. I will call for the grain and multiply and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and increase your fields so that you never, you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. You'll loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. So, sound, all right, we're getting close. All right, they're starting to feel bad a little bit, but they're still not right. Look at the next verse. Not for your sake do I do this. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. They're still in a state of rejection. But God says, I've, I've got to start this thing unilaterally. You're in a state of rejection, but you know what? This is the end. And since you won't glorify me, I will glorify myself in the land and I'm going to bring you to the land almost against your will. And some were brought here to Israel against their will. They were thrown out of their countries and spewed out and said, go there. God says, I'm not doing this because Israel is now the apple of my eye. Because the people are right with me because they've accepted my son as their Messiah. No, I'm doing this to glorify my name in their midst. This is something that's going to happen in the church age, not in the millennial kingdom, when Israel is in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. So God here makes a very powerful promise that is wondrous because it isn't waiting for anything from man. God says, when I'm ready, I'm doing this, regardless of where Israel is as a people. I'm going to make it happen. Brethren, this is this is today. And isn't it marvelous? I mean, let's get a little realistic here. When Jesus opened the Word of God, read it, and set, closed it up and said to the men, this day... This has been completed in your sight. You go, why? Why didn't they just jump up and go, wow? Because they're a lot like us. Because right now, this day, in these days, in our lives, in this time, we watch this happen. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? This is done. I skipped a few verses. Let's finish with just reading them. Verse 23, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, what I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. 
Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Will that day come? Yes. It will come. That that will be the condition that they will recognize Him as their God or their Messiah. There will be a right relationship. They will be purified. They will be made right. But prior to that, God is going to gather them to a land as a statement of His great name, of His glory. And the chronology here is very clear. I'm going to start with the land. Get it ready for the people. And then I'm going to start working in the people and getting them ready for the kingdom. We live right in the middle of that chronology. The land has already gotten ready for the people. We were alive. I was alive to watch it happen in my lifetime since I was born. Many of you have been alive the last 10 years. (laughs) The last 15 years. The last 20 years. To watch the gathering of God's people. And we now are moving into this time period where God says, you know what, I'm going to start preparing you to purify you to be ready for the kingdom. And that's coming. And we know the instrument that God's going to use to purify His people. And that's not something we take joy in, but it's something we anticipate. And that is that there will come a trial by fire on Israel by the nations around her. It will come up to her and say, peace, 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 with all the while winking behind them at each other, saying, this will be our way of destroying them. But we live in these days that Ezekiel was told would happen. When you see this, and we're just, I mean, we're literally living in the middle of this chapter where God simply has to take that one more step to say, I've drawn you out of the nations. Now I'm going to start purifying you and then I'm going to bring you into my kingdom. And when God starts doing that, I don't expect to be around to watch it happen. Because when He starts doing that work, the church should be already in His presence as He turns His attention back to Israel's spiritual condition. But while Israel's still in their sin, still not in a totally right relationship with God. And by the way, in Israel, there is a great angst against idolatry or anything like that. It's, it's almost overboard the other way. And, and Orthodox Judaism is extensive there, but there's also a lot of secular Judaism still in Israel. And so God says, you know, it's not because of you, it's because of me. I'm going to make this happen when it's time. And we're seeing God making it happen in our time. Wondrous things are happening before your eyes. And we ought to prepare ourselves for what's coming down the road. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But we ought to be preparing ourselves to recognize 
God's not only going to purify Israel by trial, but he also talks about that we must through much tribulation enter in the kingdom of God, that that's going to come upon us as well. And we should be braced and prepared for that. It's exciting to see prophecy fulfilled. It should confirm in us a confidence in the rest of Scripture, which, which is there, including that which is spoken about the church, that we don't have to wonder. We can know this is God's work. He is doing what He has said He would do thousands of years ago in your lifetime. Wow. Let's pray.